Hi, I'm James Robertson. And I'm Jeff Costello, and you're listening to Unbound, fearlessly exploring issues that matter. We're really excited this week. We had a really good conversation with Ben Woodfinden out of uh, McGill University. Uh, I'll give you his intro before we start talking to him, but I thought it was really interesting. We talked about the philosophy behind conservative politics, stretching back to pre-Confederation and what that means now and, and how, you know, we should draw inspiration from our past, but also kind of look at it and ground it in kind of more modern ideas in order to, to kind of uh, create a viable political movement. Yeah, uh, Ben has, uh, I think, in very short order, developed a, a pretty large following, at least on the uh, Twitter sphere, uh, due to some of the uh, good work that he's done, um, either through, I think, co-writing with uh, Sean Spear in the National Post, writing for occasional publication uh, down south, uh, like American Conservative, and then I think what really hit it off, and, and articles I generally I share with other people his his uh, Dominion Substack. So he's got a Substack. He's got a number of great articles exploring conservatism, a uh, bit of the history of conservatism, where are we going with conservatism, and it's all the things that we touch on in the article. And you know, I really became uh, a fan of Ben's and followed Ben when I think there was an article he did, and I think it's called the C two C Journal. I'll make sure to link that. Uh, exploring uh, Red Toryism in Canada. And uh, I really appreciate how he defines Canadian red Toryism, that it's something uh, unique, something that there is a historical connotation to it. And it's something that I think the conservatives and he thinks the conservatives uh, should uh, revisit in uh, their, their move uh, towards the future. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, growing up, you hear the term red Tory thrown around and you think, oh, I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal. And I think it's a lot deeper than that because that's what everybody says. And it's kind of a joke now. It's just like, it's a meme just to kind of say, oh yeah, I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal and therefore I have no values at all. Um, But, uh, but I think Ben puts it into some good historical perspective. And I think that his ideas about, you know, I think, I think one of the things that really hit off for me, and I think that this is in, I I will make sure we link a bunch of his articles, but uh, he talks about how the Liberal Party of Canada successfully through the 60s, 70s, and 80s built institutions that we now kind of see as quintessentially Canadians, whether that's public health care, whether that's multiculturalism, and I accept you know, Tommy Douglas actually did the first, you know, public health care option. It was an NDP have a claim on that, but the liberals own it and defend it. Um, and, uh, and, uh, but a lot of those kind of ideas about kind of the, and, and what he concludes, you know, and Ben talks about is, is that has what led us now to this idea that Justin has, Justin Trudeau has put out about it being a post nation state mm. and how that mm. really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but, that's an interesting concept, I think, to think about how they've, the Liberals have positioned themselves through the decades as the natural governing party because they're so closely tied to these institutions that we think of as very Canadian. Yeah, I, I, there was that. I think one of the aspects that I really appreciated uh, um, Ben talking a bit about is the redefinition of social conservatism. Um, thinks that it's kind of gone down... I think a certain road, um, it's, it's pigeonholed itself into something that is negative. And I think he was kind of challenging us in terms of, and I can see it's not a fully formed concept. It's something that he's still trying to think and, and 
and develop. But he he basically kind of went along the lines that um, a conservative is just naturally naturally a social conservative. It, it's it, it's a it's an element of conservatism in terms of trying to, to conserve community. Um, uh, family formation, uh, you know, community associations, I think the Burkean happy platoons um, type concept. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of room there that he's talking about, about, um, and we see this down in the States. I think even someone like Mitt Romney um, put a very family forward base program. Someone who's, uh, you know, Mitt Romney is, a, is a, I believe, a Mormon, uh, very religious man, you know, and so, and an aspect quite socially conservative, but he brought something forward. You would expect someone more like an NDP or to bring forward because they do see how important family is. And um, I think in this day and age uh, where it's very difficult, I think you could argue it's very difficult in terms of family formation, but based on access uh, to childcare, uh, access to, to affordable housing, um, close proximity to the jobs that we want to job to, you know, where parents want to work, not have to have long commutes, um, you know, a better, better support for uh, women that want to uh, work, uh, you know, in the workplace without uh, fearing uh, consequences, you know, if they take time off for child rearing or to have a baby, like all these things yeah. are, I think, great areas for uh, a kind of redefinition of social conservative. And I think that's, you know, I kind of got some sense. That's where he, that's one of the areas that he's now looking to explore. And I appreciate that. Yeah. And and I think, you know, conservatives both in Canada and the U S have been pigeonholed into this idea that social conservatism is really just about, I don't know, used to be about gay rights. Now it's about always being about abortion. Now maybe there's some trans stuff thrown in there. And I think that it's a really hard ask, but it's a necessary ask to broaden out the meaning of what it means to be socially conservative and to kind of appreciate that like what's important is that we're individuals in a society who have kind of obligations and loyalty to a bunch of different community groups, whether that's our church or our hockey team or to our Mm -hmm. neighbors. And we want to be able to build a society that allows those relationships to grow and kind of be supported. Um, And I think that it's important. I think that the difference between what a conservative vision of that is and maybe a liberal vision of that is, is that it should be very grassroots is that it should be kind of supported yep. for people to make the choices they want to make, not to have them dictated to them, but to be able to make sure that there are, you know, safety nets and backstops and assurances that, like you said, if, if women need to leave, you know, their, their jobs for a year to have a baby, spend some time with family, that they're not punished for that professionally to make sure that there's childcare available in cities to work on transit options, because it's a big cost saver. Um, and, And those things are not, those ideas are not traditionally conservative on their own, but when you put them in the context of how that's supporting the family unit, um, then I think that it is. And I think that that's the way that the, we need to expand that idea out to be broader than what, you know, Derek Sloan's idea of social <laughs> conservatism is because, you know, you can't run a party and you can't run a government on two linchpin ideas that affect a very small, not to say abortion only affects a small number of people, but in the scheme of running a country, it's a very small idea. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. You, you mean you can't run government based on liberal tiers, Jeff? Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> if we could run a government based off liberal tiers, if we could just, you know, go to the well, pull that salt up and, uh, and print money on it. Oh. I guess I guess the money would have more value than it does now. We just print it on nothing. So I mean, I, it goes for, goes for something. But. Yeah, and and one thing I I see sometimes Ben taking flack, and uh, I've seen it surprisingly. I've seen some conservatives giving a bit of flack. Um, what in terms of how much political experience he has, and I I will come to Ben's defense on this one, um, and you know like. <laughs> I, I don't really know Ben personally. Uh, our interview is the first time I've had to, a chance to talk to him face to face or Zoom to Zoom, I guess. Um, but he is what I would term uh, a more of a conservative philosopher. And I appreciate sure. that. And I think we need a little bit more of that in Canada. And so uh, I hope that he continues along that path and continues to develop um, I hate the word thought leadership, but I'm going to use it, I guess, thought leadership uh, for Canadian conservatism, you know, and yeah. um, for us to, to ponder and potentially eventually, um, you know, take that and transfer it into policy. And you know what? Conservative politics on the right-hand side of the spectrum are a total mess right now. Oh, like yeah. it's a total disaster. And there's no real reason why we shouldn't be trumping and trouncing Trudeau in the polls but can't do it, can't figure it out. And we've had years to figure it out. And frankly, the Trudeau government has kind of floundered on a whole bunch of ethical issues and a whole bunch of issues that we could turn it into something. We haven't managed to do it. And I think that a big part of that is- I think there was a thing with with Trudeau today and it was funny based on the the Wigger vote where uh, he said there are many institutions in this country, including a big building right across the street of us, Parliament that was built around a system of colonialism, discrimination, and systematic racism in all of our institutions. And I just find that, uh, (laughs) am I taking crazy pills here? What is going on? You know, that uh, he's absent on one vote and something that seems to be very clear. And then he comes in and just, um, what I say, take a dump (laughs) on our our country. uh, Yeah, well, not to mention that I think the same week that the parliament voted that the Uyghur gen to, to acknowledge and recognize the Uyghur genocide, uh, Canada loaned, uh, business development, Canada loaned China $3 billion. You know, the apology tour continues. The just, yeah. you, the, you know, the Justin Trudeau apology tour can't be mean to anybody, but, but, but what I'm really trying to say, you know, going back to Ben, I think there's a lot of kind of the, the conservative party is being kind of run by, um, you know, getting a lot of advice and clearly making decisions on a, of, on a very kind of like political calculation of what pulls well and what is good communi- yeah. communication strategy and how do we, you know, like uh, paint issues in a way that is good to voters. And I think that we've become detached slightly from why we are doing those things. Um, and as Ben says really well, the people who are philosophers need to understand that you need to win elections to actually, you know, put, put, policies in place but the people who are trying to win elections need to understand that you have to have a plan when you get there there's a reason you want to win the election in the first place and that kind of draws from the philosopher so i think it was a really great conversation with him and i'm looking forward to let's get after uh, it get after getting getting into it with him and um, i mean we already have so we kind of know how it went (laughs) but i'm looking forward to our audience hearing it and uh and then getting some feedback from them and one thing i'll mention before we start if you've been enjoying kind of 
this episode. If you enjoyed our last conversation with Kaveh, please do recommend us to your friends. We're just starting out. We're trying to build a bit more of a following. Give us a like, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It would really help us out. Uh, we have no idea where this is going, but James and I are really enjoying these conversations and we want to try to spread those to as many people as we can. So um, if you uh, feel so inclined, we'd really appreciate it. Other than that, we'll, uh, we'll get you to bed. All right, here we go. All right, Ben Woodfinden is a political theorist and doctoral candidate out of McGill University. He is an author as well, written in lots of great publications, including C2C Journal, uh, The Critic, American Mind, uh, National Post, Maclean's, and perhaps most influentially, his own substack, The Dominion, not to be confused with the voting machines in the U.S., Uh, that's thedominion.substack.com, which is a great place to get a really good sense of his thoughts on political philosophy, conservative philosophy, and uh, the history of political thinking in Canada. It's really great to have him here. Welcome, Ben Woodfinden. Okay, so welcome to Ben Woodfinden, our second guest on Unbound. We're really, really excited to have him here today. How are you doing tonight, Ben? (laughs) I'm doing great. Thanks, guys, for having me. No problem. So tell us a little bit about yourself for anybody who doesn't know you and is out of the loop. What are you doing? What are you preoccupied with? What are you filling your days with? Well, I'm a, so I'm a doctoral candidate at McGill University in Montreal, uh, and I, uh, I'm a political theorist by training, which means I deal with kind of, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in a political science department, but I do much more of the kind of the philosophy side, the theoretical side. Uh, a lot of what I do actually is basically just a uh, history of political thought. Um, but right now I'm kind of preoccupied with um, my, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get my, my dissertation finished. Uh, of McGill. My dissertation is basically a kind of um, a history of uh, uh, the executive in the Westminster system. Um, so I'm basically doing a kind of a history of the kind of the crown as it's evolved into the, the, the dissertation is going to be called something like the democratic crown. Uh, and it's basically a history of how the, the emergence of the prime minister and how the prime minister has essentially kind of assumed uh, so much of the kind of royal prerogative and how the prime minister now mm. is this kind of unique uh, not quite a presidential figure, but a kind of regalized, a regalized mm-hmm. president in a way. Um, so I won't bore listeners with details on that, but that is kind of what's made, what preoccupies me and what takes up most of my time these days. I think that's interesting, which is probably why you're talking to us, um, because I think we think that's interesting. <laughs> and James and I started this whole thing just so we well, have... I, I mean... Before... Sorry. Yeah, interesting conversations with guys like Ben. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so this is kind of your well, and, and can I can I pump Ben's tires a bit? Yeah, for a absolutely, second? absolutely. I, I just, you can. I want to like before before we yeah before we go on and, and then sorry for people listening. Uh, there's always that pause as we kind of go back and forth. Uh, and that's just the unfortunate thing of Zoom and our digital era. At some point, and Jeff and I will be sitting in a studio together once we've got a you know uh, on the the better side of COVID. Um, but Ben, I, I forget how I came across uh, Ben. It was probably through Twitter. And there's actually, this is the good side of Twitter is, um, you know, because pe- people keep bringing up about what a health site it is. But then uh, if you kind of spread yourself out to different people that try to uh, put out intellectual thought, and I find Ben was one of those people, it's something sparked up in terms of, there was just a tweet, I think it was tied to Red Toryism. 
and a linked article and I dove there and it was just like, Hey, there is some actual depth and gravitas to this person. This is a person that's intellectually curious on the idea uh, on certain concepts. And it's something that was sorely missed. There's a, there's a couple other uh, people out there, but there's few and far between. I find uh, North of the border in terms of intellectual thought on the center, right? And I, I think Ben is one of those and he's probably one of my most recommended follows where I'm telling people, yeah, follow this person. Have you seen his Substack newsletter? Follow this. Have you seen this article, uh, especially on concepts uh, like red Toryism, which uh, in a lot of conservative circles in Canada gets a pretty uh, negative read. And I think we'll go into that a little bit later, but I just wanted to uh, pump his tires yeah. a bit. Ben is pretty, He's young. He, that's and that's another thing. big he's thing young. is he's so, not a, an old guy writing about conservatism <laughs> and red Toryism. He's well, I've started to go gray in the last, I think pandemic is pandemic and wedding planning stress has brought it on, but I'm starting to go gray and I'm, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's keeping me up at night. I'm, I wish I wasn't, it was, I wasn't so, uh, obsessed with it but i really like every time i look in the mirror i'm like are there any new are there any new ones there it could be worse you could be losing your hair like james so <laughs> yeah you know you gotta count your blessings where you get them yeah yeah and there's another thing too that's kind of funny about this has been uh because of his um his uh english background and he can go into that a bit so he's got a bit of an accent you can hear that and also because he's a conservative we don't have video here and you know he does sound very learned he's a learned man but i can confirm via video that the guy is kind of got a, a nice little like cool jacket cool t-shirt his collar it might even be popped there is no blue blazer or tweed jacket there is no rich mahogany and leather bound books behind this guy is actually like he's being kind of hip here on on camera so you know just 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 to dissuade any of that conservative thought that they, they think that this guy's got uh is boring he's got the conservative the uh, classical music in the background so can't tell good on you that. ben that, that, that damages my brand it damages my when people know that i don't like sleeping it, it'll change how people think about me yeah don't you, you gotta yeah, know how to tie the bow ties right <laughs> Okay. I, I, my dark secret is I actually hate wearing suits. Uh, I will wear them when I have to, and I like dressing nicely. But I, uh, yeah, it's very out of character for me, I suppose. But I hate wearing a tie. If, if I can avoid, if I can get away with not wearing one, I won't wear one. That's wow. so cool. Me too. I thought all conservatives were born in blue blazers and khaki pants. I mean, like, <laughs> just a, yeah, and the, it's new. It's go for it. Yeah, and the cart shed at the golf club. If you, if you spend your time yeah. floating around kind of yeah. conservative <laughs> circles, it'll put you off bow ties very quickly. Yeah. yeah. So let's get into it here. So you, so what I'm really curious about you is you're like, I think you're a great voice, like James said on, online, for the philosophies behind some of what we see on the right and center right. So I'm kind of curious if you could give, if, if you could kind of distill this down uh, in a short period of time, you know, what's kind of the history of conservatism in Canada? What are its roots? And then a bit later, we'll get into kind of how those roots, if they're still working, if there's, if the brand, if the philosophy is still applies to kind of our modern day, but how do we kind of get the conservative party that we have today philosophically? Well, if you, if you start with the kind of, I mean, you can play around with the dates on this, uh, but in, in so many ways, Canada is itself in some sense a kind of a conservative project in the, in the Anglo sense of the term. Um, I mean, the, you know, a lot of this is kind of myth-making that we tell ourselves. 
Um, but Canada's origins are in kind, as kind of a kind of counter-revolutionary project, right? We were colonies like the American colonies, uh, but we were the ones that decided to stay loyal to the crown. And we were the ones that forged something that was, uh, you know, related but different uh, to what took place south of us. Uh, and in so many ways, that is a kind of, um, it, it was a conservative project, not in kind of um, like capital C dogmatic terms, but the kind of the, the society that was um, not, wasn't even a planned society, but the kind of the project that emerged that becomes, that becomes Canada is a, was, a, was a, a society that was in contrast with America was more restrained, more ordered, more peaceable. Um, and I still think that the, and so I, I kind of think that the origins of Canada are kind of bound up in this. Um, and it's, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not strictly true that Canada is a, you know, an, an ideologically conservative country. Um, but our kind of temperament and disposition in this way is definitely kind of small C dispositionally conservative. And though that has kind of evolved and morphed kind of substantially over the century, over the last couple of centuries, um, I don't think the kind of fundamental, uh, the, the fundamental kind of premise there of us being this kind of this more small C conservative, this more ordered, restrained, um, a, a kind of a more a, a society more built to look like that. Uh, which is a uh, which is a fundamentally a conservative society in some sense that is still true today i think um and uh canadian conservatism what, whatever it looks like it's uh you know we can get into kind of the specifics of you know the, the regional distinctions and varieties of this um but i don't think that i think there's, if there's one thing that we have to remember it's that and if there's one thing that should kind of be in uh, in political uh, electoral terms if there's one thing that should be in kind of conservatives favor it's that we are this kind of um, we're not this wild, unrestrained place. We do have this kind of sense of order and this sense of restraint that um, I think is kind of a kind of a bedrock conservatism. Mm. Peace, order, and good governance is, kind of comes across mm. as conservative, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's all of this is totally. Um, um, you can, you can. There's so many different ways of conceiving of what conserv conservatism is. Um, and, and if we're getting, if we're really kind of uh, drilling into the kind of bedrock of uh, what, what conservatism is about, conservatism is itself in some sense, uh, um, I, I think it's a, it's a modern, it's a modern, it's a modernism, it's a modern ideology. There's, you know, you can, you could call it all sorts of things going back to, you know, to the dawn of civilization conservative, uh, but conservatism as we understand it today is definitely a, uh, uh, it's a reaction to aspects of modernity. It's not anti-modern, um, but it's 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 definitely a kind of a reaction to certain aspects of uh, of what have happened in modernity. Um, and in in that sense, it's always going to be um, there. There's no such thing as a kind of well, um, people, some some will disagree here, but um, conservatism is always going to be situational in some sense. It's going to it's always going to be dependent on the context in which you're trying to conserve something. The thing that you're trying to conserve in the the time, the place, the space that you're living in uh, is never going to be exactly the same in uh, different places. And so that what that conservatism actually looks like is going to look quite different in, um, in practice. Uh, but then, but the, yeah, the Canadian, the, the Canadian foundations there, I think are actually pretty strong and pretty solid. So how did that evolve through the, from the founding up through kind of the 20th century? Um, into we get kind of more into modern politics and how the Conservative Party kind of thought of itself during the 70s and 80s. Um, Thatcherism was happening in the UK and obviously there was kind of a similar Reaganism kind of very 
individualist bent uh, to conservative politics then. Was that in line with what the historical foundings of the conservative kind of of the conservative thought was in Canada, or is that an extension, or is that kind of a break from that? Um, no, I think I, there was definitely some sort of break, um, and you can you can play around with uh, you, you can pick different dates to kind of be that sure. that breaking point, uh, the moment things change. But the the kind of the the in the the years the decades after Confederation uh, and leading into the twentieth century. Um, the the big C and small C, the conservatives were kind of um, they were the governing it was a governing ideology, the governing party, um, and the thing the kind of so 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 much of our politics was built around kind of national questions, right? Who we are, and those things still matter today. I think I think we actually conservatives underplay the importance of these questions today mm. uh, here. Um, but the in the in the the first in the first in the decades after Confederation, the conservatives kind of. Um, uh, the thing that they were conserving was a, uh, a Canada in the British Empire, right, in the British order. Um, and so the, the thing, the specific institutions and the, the things they were trying to conserve were fundamentally bound up uh, in national questions to do with this identity as this kind of, uh, this dominion, this British dominion. Um, and then, I mean, things happened beyond our control uh, or beyond in kind of global terms, you know, the, the, the empire itself obviously starts to decline. Uh, Britain itself, uh, I mean, it, it gets under, underrated sometimes how much of kind of Canada's history is also, it's not just defined by us wanting independence. A lot of it was just Britain losing interest in so many ways. Um, and so the something happened, things happened in the 20th century um, where the kind of, there's a flip where the thing that had made conservative, big C and small C conservatism so dominant um, was the fact that they owned, they owned the national question, right, in terms of, uh, being the, the the attachments to the empire and our place in the world and relations who to we are yeah yeah, um, yeah and then and then it flips in the 20th century the liberals become the liberals and still today they now own that question right what it means to be canadian was in so many ways constructed by the the liberal party and liberal prime ministers um and so many of our kind of institution the flag you know the charter things like that are kind of uh, big l liberal small l liberal big l liberal constructs um and my kind of my uh, my my if I'm putting my kind of uh, philosopher's hat on and trying to kind of dabble in kind of how I think this actually manifests in politics, um, I think these questions matter. I think a lot of kind of politics is dispositional and emotive in that sense. And the party that kind of um, one one of the things I've always found uh, uh, interesting was um, uh, Canadians have this kind of like to think of themselves as you know not patriotic in a kind of uh, the rah-rah sense of patriotism, uh, like the American sense, basically. Um, and uh, but but actually, coming from the UK, uh, one of the things I noticed when I moved here was actually how patriotic Canada is in so many ways. Um, yeah, how I've many, heard that from like, how many, as well. Yeah, how many you'll see flags everywhere, which you don't really see in the UK. Like if you take out kind of government buildings, you don't see that many Union Jacks flying around in the UK, but you see the Maple Leaf flag everywhere in Canada. You see like, you know, every McDonald's has to have the Maple Leaf on their uh, Canadian arch. Think how many things just have to have um, the Maple Leaf on them. Uh, and, it's, and it's because Canadians are this kind of um, instinctually quite a, a patriotic people, I think. And I'm, I think that's a good thing for the record. It's not a criticism. Um, how much, sorry, how much of that do you think is naturally born out of 
Canadian founding and culture and how much of that is a pushback against U.S., you know, wanting to be our own nation when compared to a state that is much more culturally and military and economically powerful than us? Uh, it's, it's both. Um, I don't think some people will kind of, um, the, the, they'll, as, as a criticism, they'll kind of, um, you know, the, being Canadian is nothing more than wanting to not be American, right? Um, you'll hear kind of, you know, criticism and uh, stuff along those lines all the time. Um, and I've never, I've never really understood the, this line of argument in that um, so many kind of uh, national, nationalistic national projects are very much about, um, they, they often start about defining yourself in contrast with an, with an other, with some sort of outside force, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's completely natural that we, all sorts of, like all sorts of European nationalisms are very much built on just kind of not liking your neighbor or kind of being a bit kind of uh, wary of your neighbor. Uh, and Canada in that sense is no different. I've never thought that that was, a, that was kind of um, uh, a kind of a unique flaw or failing of uh, Canadian nationalism where we live next door to this, to this, this, this superpower, right? This, this global hegemon um, it's completely natural that we're going to kind of, um, that th our insecurity or whatever you want to call it around that is going to manifest itself in all sorts of weird, and maybe it's insecure, maybe it's, you know, call it whatever you want, but um, I don't think that's unnatural or unexpected. I don't think it's a problem either. Um, it kind of, uh, it, it grounds us in a way, um, mm -hmm. and it keeps us kind of, e even if, you know, we have trouble defining the content sometimes, what it means to be Canadian, uh, we still know that we're Canadian. Uh, and in that sense, it's organic, right? You don't necessarily have to, um, the idea that you kind of, your national identity, your loyalties would have to be kind of, you could reduce them to a, you know, a 10 points. Here's the 10 things that make me Canadian. Um, <laughs> a very silly way to look at it. So I don't think the kind of the, um, the, the ambiguity and the, of the content is itself a problem. I've always thought actually it's probably, uh, probably makes it quite flexible and it's probably something that will actually allow it to be kind of useful um, as the world changes. Mm -hmm. You wrote, um, I kind of just something on, you, you touched on, you, you wrote an article, I, I think it was on your sub stack. I think it was in a, the realignment, could a realignment happen here mm -hmm. um, post about how the liberals have come to own the, uh, the federal liberals through the sixties have built the institutions that now we recognize as culturally Canadian. Um, and so things like immigration and, and our approach to kind of our, you know, how we deal with multiculturalism and language and Quebec and a whole bunch of those things were framed in those years that now we look at as being, you know, essentially Canadian. Um, are there Canadianisms that are not politically related? Like, are there Canadian things that are not an institution that we have come up with or that the, the federal liberals have come up with? I, you know, I, I think about, you know, when I think about Canada, about, you know, being kind of still a pioneering nation, uh, vast, you know, natural resources, but that's not the 10, that doesn't tend to be the type of patriotism that we see people talking about when they refer to themselves as Canadians. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, in terms of uh, the, th the things that kind of ground people, um, uh, I mean, as, as silly as things like, um, I don't know, I, I want to use, I don't even want to use examples like this, but things like Tim Hortons, for example, not that, not that I think Tim Hortons is this kind of staple <laughs> of the Canadian identity, uh, but there's all sorts of, um, I don't, like, again, I don't think it's like hockey, for example, right? Um, that's part of who Canadians are. And, Hockey isn't uh, one of the most interesting things about um, 
uh, one, one of the things that I actually think makes hockey kind of quite distinctly Canadian uh, and why I don't have a problem, why I think it's actually quite uh, natural for it to be a kind of national, something that we can build a kind of identity, not you know, singularly around, but why it could play a role in it, is if you just think about the way that we, um, so often kind of hockey can be kind of tied up with the landscape, right? Um, like think about when um, uh, when the NHL will do these, uh, these outdoor games, um, and quite often they'll try and pick, uh, I mean, the, it's obviously, the NHL is obviously not just a Canadian uh, league, but um, think about kind of, you know, they'll pick iconic kind of geographic locations, right? Like the, the most recent one in, um, uh, was, it in, was it, I forget who, I think it was the Colorado was playing and it was in um, uh, Lake Tahoe, I think. Yeah, it was. I think it was one in Lake Tahoe, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and it's, and it's this, this idea of like playing a game uh, with that, with this, these enormous, like majestic geographic backdrops. Um, in some ways, I kind of think that is a kind of Canadianism exported. Um, in the sense, just think about how many commercials, you know, like Molson commercials have like people like skating on a lake with like mountains behind Glaciers them. and all that. Um, yeah. And it's, we're, yeah, we're a continental, matters, yeah. yeah, we're a continental nation and geography is a, um, it's a defining feature of kind of, um, Geography is an important challenge in kind of keeping the fact, just the fact that this, this ginormous and fairly hostile, we have this fairly inhospitable, hostile climate. That is that shapes our character in a way, right? It doesn't just shape our perception and kind of, you know, we think of ourselves as hardy and we can, well, depending on where you're from, uh, you can deal with the cold. Um, it's also <laughs> a kind of, um, uh, it's also we, we you know, we, we uh, when you look at the, when you look at the Rockies, you see there is something kind of um, uh, something completely natural about seeing seeing something Canadian in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. all these things, it, it's funny when people want you to kind of put content and substance and really flesh out your your patriotism, your nationalism. Um, but a, a genuine kind of a genuine patriotism patriotism is going to be uh, it's going to be organic, which means it's going to kind of uh, define itself and flesh itself and attach itself to kind of very strange and idiosyncratic things, right? Um, yeah. There is definitely that. Uh, I, I think within that same article, you talked about a Canadian identity tied to uh, strong regional bodies, a pluralism uh, of characters. And I, I think that kind of, again, goes to the the binding element of peace, order and good governance that allows people generally to live a, a somewhat meaningful, prosperous life uh, from... You know, from, from fear, from want. Um, and there is a definite, really interesting uniqueness about the different characters. At least I find that with Canada. It's one of the things that I always, when people ask me, what is one of the great things of military service? And um, I think one of it is the, is it really exposes uh, a Canadian to particular, whatever particular area they can't, they come from to other Canadian cultures and they are very different. Mm-hmm. They all have very unique things. All of a sudden you, your, your cabin mate, your bunk mate is there's, there's a new fee that you can barely <laughs> understand. Uh, and trust me, there was guys in my basic training and <laughs> whatnot. I could barely understand. And then on the, you know, on the, from one side of the room and then the other side of the room, there was someone from, not from like, from, an urban Quebec, but from the backwoods of Quebec that could barely speak of looking at and all very different culture, you know, same with like rural Ontario, kind of t- they all have unique, different cultures. And it's, um, 
and it's somewhat fun, I think, sometimes, and especially as um, you get to know one another is kind of, uh, I think you'd say, taking the piss out of each other, you know, occasionally joking at, uh, at one who has different regions as much as they do the same uh, to us. But it is something that's pretty unique to Canada. Again, with such a big geography, um, it, it, it is remarkable, the cultural differences uh, within, within the, our borders. Well, the, the, um, yeah, my, if there's a kind of um, uh, a theme of a lot of my writing, um, it's that the kind of the, um, the, the, the national identity that was kind of, that kind of emerged in the, in, the kind of, in the second half of the 20th century, the kind of li this liberal, big L and small L national identity, um, the very nature of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of liberalism is it's, it's itself kind of a, uh, we can get into this, I think it's probably, it's probably more accurate to talk about liberalisms in a plural sense as opposed to a singular sense. There's lots of different kinds of liberalism. Mm -hmm. um, but the Canadian, the Canadian liberalism, the, especially the kind of, when I think of it like Trudeau, Trudeau senior, Pierre Trudeau liberalism, uh, which is in so many ways kind of now uh, built into our kind of political and uh, legal institutions. Um, it's a very kind of uh, totalizing and, uh, uh, well, I would, I would say it's like a homogenizing um, Liberalism, the idea that everyone is to be treated the exact same and that kind of people are, you know, free, everyone is free and equal in the same way. If there's, in, some, in one sense, that's very liberating. Uh, but in another sense, it's quite, it homogenizes people. It treats, it kind of, it reduces kind of thick cultural differences into kind of superficial, superficial yeah. uh, differences. Um, and in that sense, that kind of, that kind of universalistic homogenizing as part of liberalism um, can be quite threatening to kind of, uh, what you might call like particularistic, uh, thick attachments people have. And um, one of the kind of, um, the, one of the long-term challenges, I think, and opportunities, challenges and opportunities for, um, uh, I don't know, not for, not for anyone specific, but at kind of at the national level is finding a way to make sure that we have some sort of relatively, um, a, a national kind of loyalty and values that can command allegiance, that can command kind of feelings of loyalty from people. But also something that is that is um, leaves space for these kind of diverse local uh, and regional identities, and something that can allow, uh, in this sense, it'd be quite pluralistic. Where because um, one of my one of the kind of things I've learned um, uh, just from uh, just life, I guess, um, is there's very uh, the plenty of people will kind of plenty of non-Canadians kind of know that there's a difference between like English and French Canada. Um, but they assume English Canada looks the same. Um, mm. One of the things you learn when you kind of, if you live and travel across um, the country, is how how the, the the differences between different parts of English Canada and you know oh, yeah. ROC or the rest of Canada are pretty substantial at times as well. Um, I've learned a lot. My uh, my fiance is from. Um, uh, she's from St. John's uh, and her family are kind of, um, mm -hmm. uh, they've been there for centuries, like a long, long time. Um, so I, so I, uh, yeah, I can relate to you not understanding, uh, uh, <laughs> sounding like a foreign language sometimes. Um, uh, but it's, it's a, Newfoundland <laughs> is a, is a, it's a, it's a, it's a place that I've kind of become that uniquely fascinated with partially through her, but just for, through visiting it quite a few times. Um, and it's a, the the loyalties are the loyalties there the kind of the history there it's it's its own it, I mean it was until you know, it's not even been part of Canada for a century so um, you would expect it to look different uh, but the idea yeah. that like a Newfoundlander is the same as a as a, someone from Toronto is the same as someone from Vancouver is the same as someone from you know rural Alberta 
uh, it's ludicrous to think that, right? Um, and well, the history is so just, you know, compared to a, a country like the UK, you know, the history is so uh, disparate because there's so much more history on half of the country and it, you know, it gets <laughs> younger and younger as you go West. Um, and that kind of really does shape the cultures because I think that the, like you said, the St. John's, the whole East coast has a very unique is I, I would, I would, even as somebody who is from the Western half of the country would say that the East coast is more quintessentially Canadian because it has a very unique, you know, identifiable culture to it. Not that, you know, the difference between Vancouver and Saskatchewan and, and all this stuff doesn't, but definitely as you move West, you have less cultural history in that area to ground yourself off of at least post-colonial times because there is an aboriginal history that yeah. is a whole nother thing um but that's kind of a a, a unique feature that we have and i get that we share with the u.s yeah and it's it's um and, and again there's, there's nothing um there's, there's nothing wrong with that right there's nothing to be there's nothing there's no um uh, not that i'm assuming anyone has this but um you know being from a place that is younger it's not a bad thing uh, and over you know a century from now i imagine that um you know, I mean, you're already seeing it. The, the, you know, different. I don't just not. You won't just see a kind of, um, you know, different different Western provinces, different Western places will develop their own kind of, uh, right. very kind of thick, distinct local local identities and stuff. And, that, and I think that's a. Um, I I think we should embrace that. I think we should encourage it. Um, Unless it's Alberta separatism, because <laughs> that's yeah. not a, it's not a, it's separating trying to separate well, from your country it, isn't the form this, isn't a good it, way to ground your Canadian identity. This is this is the challenge I think of uh, of the twenty first century for Canada is finding ways to simultaneously build something something that can accommodate um, one thing that I if there's one kind of uh, shifting shifting um, uh, fact about Canada it is that the kind of the center the the center and metaphorical terms is shifting westward right um, the West is mm -hmm. you know, growing in, in demographically economically. Um, and as that, as that, as time goes on, um, the kind of the center of gravity will just naturally shift west. Uh, and Canada's got to find ways to. I mean, I'm, um, I, I'm, I, I'm certainly not a, obviously not a like an Alberta separatist, um, but I, I get plenty of the concerns and the gripes and the, and the feelings of unfairness that uh, people in places like Alberta have over some things. And um, the long-term challenge for Canada is going to be finding ways to make sure that we not just not just kind of evolve in um, uh, institutional terms uh, to accommodate this, but evolving in kind of culturally, uh, in, in cultural terms as well, to find ways to make sure that we can still have this kind of something that keeps us united, something that keeps us uh, together, uh, that can command an attachment, but something that also gives space for these, uh, not just for these existing local attachments, but also uh, creates room for these new ones to flourish and to grow because and you can't predict necessarily what that's going to look like right um, places are going to evolve in their own different ways and then take on their own little uh, unique kind of forms and you want to yeah. build relatively um, uh, you want to build kind of anti-fragile institutions that can actually kind of accommodate uh, that kind of change and even if you can't anticipate the 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 specifics of the change, you can, you're, 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 you're anti-fragile, you're strong enough to be able to kind of accommodate whatever change happens. Yeah. Yeah. And so going on, I want to touch on a little bit of dangerous ground here because um, <laughs> we are discussing anti-right or sorry, anti-right, center-right um, and conservative talk. Within this one article, you, you have discussed that sometimes the conservatives can kind of 
get pulled into an, a little bit of a, a almost an anti-Canada element or can kind of at least be seen by it in terms of um, its, its in some elements of its distrust of, of government. Uh, also, I think you, you talk about the shift uh, slightly to the West. Um, is there a friction? Is there some form of element between um, I think that remnant or that element of the reform party that was brought under Preston Manning uh, eventually merged under Stephen Harper. Um, is that what type of thought is that within Alberta? Uh, it, what does that conservatism look like? Is that different from central Canada conservatism? Where are, where are we right now um, within conservative thought? Um, there, I know a lot of parts of that question. But. <laughs> yeah, um, there's there's definitely um, some of the, some of the tensions and so, some of the kind of um, like like I said before. I, the, the, I I don't think those tensions are um, are illegitimate or to be or or shouldn't they shouldn't be a surprise. Um, and the 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 yeah the the. The trend that I've kind of—I'm um, not the first person to point this out, but it's something that I definitely kind of think gets uh, undo. It, it, it also depends, you know. Some people think I will think, think I think about politics in kind of two, you know, abstract terms. I don't. I, sometimes that's true, uh, but I, I, there is something um, grounded and real to this. That um, the as the I, I think part part of what has happened um, is that the as as the liberals became the kind of came to own various national institutions and kind of came to shape them. Uh, it was only natural in some ways that uh, conservatives in opposition to that become in some sense, you know, they're not necessarily kind of, it, you can understand why they wouldn't just naturally embrace institutions that they kind of feel are, uh, you know, uh, not even, not necessarily like partisan, but like aren't their institutions were built sure, by. Sure someone else that's a net you can understand that feeling it's hard to push uh, back against a party that has created things that are now tightly bound to the canadian cultural identity right without coming across as not as being anti-canada or anti yeah. kind of established you know anti against the identity that we've built yeah and so much of um and and so so in some sense it's natural the problem is um if kind of if these institutions have genuinely kind of taken root and people in general feel a kind of uh a, a common an attachment to them then your if your conservatism is kind of just in opposition to these institutions uh number one that's just going to come across as kind of um uh, a conservatism that is kind of anti-national is always going to be a kind of uh perplexing shall we say uh political movement um but the 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 the, the other the kind of deeper question there is if you're if you're if you're not a, if you're not a fan of um, these kind of these new institutions and symbols and the, whatever it is the flag the the healthcare uh, multiculturalism healthcare, you whatever um, you've got to kind of um, uh, and it, I mean it's, it, again it depends on how you define conservatism but um, in some sense if you're a conservative there must be something that you are trying to conserve right um, uh, yep. it's in the name you can't, I don't really think you can get around that. Um, so if you're, if you're trying to, if there's something you're trying to conserve and you don't like these kind of, these new institutions, well, what is it that you're trying to conserve? Um, and then what, one of the things I find most interesting in kind of this, uh, the kind of anti-nationalism of, um, 
some asset. And I don't think it's a solely Western uh, Canadian thing. But uh, one thing I found curious, curious um, is that, especially in like Albertan separatists, I've, I've noticed that quite a lot of them tend to be uh, Republicans, smaller Republicans. Um, and I that is it's, it's fascinating to me because they're um, the, the the there's very little left now of Canadian conservatism that is kind of um, uh, nostalgizing for what you might call the old Canada, right? The pre, you know, the the, the old flag, the old old stuff like that. There are people that um, that do that, but it's certainly not kind of a potent or serious political force. Um, but the um, the people that some of these kind of these is a, the, there is a facet of Canadian conservatism that in rejecting the the new whatever you want to call it, the new Canada, the new things, the new the new Canadaisms. Um, it doesn't necessarily seem particularly eager to go back to kind of uh, the old order, whatever you want to call it, like the old Canada. Um, and that's why I find that, that uh, Albertan separatism being uh, Republican, I find that fascinating because that is itself kind of something very... Um, I mean, in a sense, it's new. It, it is, yeah. In a sense, it's not yeah. looking backwards. It's looking to the U.S. largely, I think, or to alternative ways of building institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, one of the things I think that uh, this was in some sense a kind of an accident of history, uh, but as this kind of um, as this kind of modern, more modern kind of Canadian conservatism is taking taking root, take, uh, gaining steam, this is the kind of you know this is in the the eighties and the nineties, the kind of the end of the twentieth century. This is the kind of um, these are the heyday that you know you've had the, you've had your Thatcher and you've had your Reagan. Uh, this new kind of like. Uh, whatever you want to call it, this kind of uh, liberty dominated, freedom dominated, freedom, freedom prioritizing, um, you call it whatever, you, there's all sorts of different things you could characterize as, you know, fusionism is uh, one way of understanding it, but, you know, this kind of free, free, free market, liberty focused conservatism, um, which I think, which is a distinct, I think it's an American, it, it, it's something that makes much more sense in America than it does elsewhere. Um, it become you can see how because it because that kind of conservatism is fairly kind of anti-statist, anti-government. You can see why mm -hmm. if you're looking to reject these kind of new symbols that you know healthcare, uh, you know, official bilingualism, uh, unit like whatever you name it, these kind of state institutions, these government institutions. You can see how naturally that kind of like anti-government conservatism is quite a natural fit for that. It's the kind of, it can put flesh on those bones, right? and give it a kind of ideological substance. Um, the thing that I've, uh, and I, I know this is, this is not a popular thing when I say this, but I, that kind of conservatism I think is just alien uh, to Canada in so many ways, that kind of anti-statist, anti-government conservatism. I agree. Doesn't fit with our kind I of agree. national- I think it has a very limited uh, audience. Really yeah. hard to get. And you know, it, it, when you bring it up, and <laughs> I think about it uh, in terms of, you know, when we talk about conservative philosophy and um, I think of uh, the late Sir Roger Scruton, who, who talks about this as well. And, um, you know, in some regards was a bit of, you know, was a fan of some of the things that um, Margaret Thatcher did, uh, but was also opposed to some of the uh, just pure free market ideology that she pushed where it was just, you know, free market will solve everything, reduce government, reduce. And, it, you know, not that Sir Roger Scruton was at all, from what I can see, um, a fan of big government, but um, he did think that there was some of the Reaganism of Thatcherism was ideologically 
um, I'm not, I don't know if it's in conflict with actual conservative thought. Well, I mean, and I, I feel that, you know, in Canada, we're going through that right now. And Jeff and I have talked about that. Scruton is very interesting in that regard where he, um, he, he's, the I don't I don't this kind of Reagan Thatcher whatever you want to call it, that kind of conservatism, um, the context of that matters a lot as well. And sometimes we kind of neglect this, but we're um, the context of this is the Cold War, right? The kind of the the broader backdrop is um, you've got this this foreign enemy, the Soviet Union, this godless, you know, communistic, socialistic enemy um, that's an, an enemy of human freedom and human dignity. Uh, and the kind of the modern, especially in America, uh, but the, the kind of the American fusionist coalitions, coalition of kind of religious conservatives, uh, neo like foreign policy hawks. I shouldn't call them neocons; it's not the right word to describe them. Foreign policy hawks and uh, like free market libertarian types. The kind of the the fusion there, the alliance of those different disparate groups, makes total sense in the kind of context of a common enemy, right? In the context of this. Uh, this atheistic, uh, godless, communistic, socialistic, uh, and real security threat. Yes, genuine, genuine, and genuine security threat. Um, exactly, and it make in anti-communism, anti-anti-Soviet. Being anti-Soviet was kind of a very kind of natural thing to bring these three groups together. The problem is the that kind of um, the the what, what what should have been kind of understood as kind of a, co- a coalition there, a kind of situational contingent coalition kind of got um blended uh, into an actual ideology of its own yeah Yeah, exactly which has a lot of kind of uh internal uh contradictions i think yeah exactly and scruton himself scruton was involved in uh anti-communist activity and um uh in the czechoslovakia i think it was and a couple of other places uh and so early some of scruton's early writings are uh in some sense are he's at times he's quite critical of, uh, of Thatcher. Um, but again, in the context of the Cold War, in the context of the, um, you know, he's writing the, 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 iron, the iron curtain's still up. Um, it, his, his kind of, his opposition to communism uh, and his defense of kind of human dignity um, and uh, the kind of West, the kind of Anglo, Anglo uh, conservative tradition there, it makes total sense that it might be more kind of, um, and, he, and even like a, you know, in the seventies, Thatcher's kind of, uh, I, I, I don't, my, my issues with Thatcher have never been uh, that I think she was wrong. I think she made total sense in the context that she was in. Um, and some of her, even some of her, uh, I think the kind of the economic challenges that she was dealing with, um, she, uh, she, she found ways to deal with them. Um, but that doesn't mean that again, that the kind of the, 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 the contextual conservatism, the situational stuff that she was, uh, that grounded what she was doing is something that makes sense 50 now 50 years later right uh, and this is something i think we forget too often it's easy to kind of turn uh, what should be always understood as kind of sort of you know if if there was to be some sort of kind of grand conservative uh, idea or movement to merge today probably wouldn't make sense 50 years from now and i wouldn't expect it to and it would be a mistake for people 50 years from now to try and apply every single thing that you know, me or like people that lived people that are kind of working in this today uh, it wouldn't necessarily make sense for them to just kind of say, let's, you know, let's apply what, what Ben was saying in 2021, uh, in 2081. Uh, the world's going to look different then, and so should what you're kind of, so should your, your, your politics. And I'll throw, this, I'll throw this back to you, because I think that makes a lot of sense. Is it possible that the 
um, that the ideology and the kind of, I guess, theory of the world that existed for federal liberals through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s is also past its time. Because I, I have this feeling, and this is part of why I think I find myself on the side of the spectrum I do, that while I support strongly a lot of what you know is put forward with kind of multiculturalism and healthcare and all these kind of Canadian values that the liberals have built, which have now become central to our identity as Canadians, are also struggling in the world that we now live in under current kind of contextual times and have to be adjusted. And it's very, is that a reasonable thing to possibly say as well, that conservatism isn't the only ideology that is defined by the context of the time? Uh, yeah, I mean, inside, it depends how kind of, how much of a historicist you are. I'm, I definitely, I lean in that direction to think that, um, you kind of understand anything kind of divorced of its, of its historical context. But I mean, uh, I always think back to the, the way that we viewed our kind of foreign affairs and as peacekeepers and as kind of intervening in large, as kind of an intermediary or a buffer between large state actors in a conflict. And that model clearly doesn't exist. Like it just, in terms of the current foreign affairs issues around terrorism and, and internal securities and, and civil wars, that seems to not be a successful model of military intervention anymore. But I get the sense from the top kind of liberal thinkers that they still hold on to that belief as a core part of their worldview. Well, I mean, think about um, uh, in, in, in so many ways that you can actually, you can actually make this kind of um, the comparison between, not, not the, so someone like Pierre Trudeau, I think is genuine, as much as I disagree with Pierre Trudeau on, disagreed with on it with him on all sorts of things um uh pierre trudeau was an intellectual he had a kind of a really um serious kind of yeah. view of the world um justin trudeau is certainly not i don't think he's um i don't think he's nearly as uh, stupid as um so lots of conservatives think he is um he's certainly not his father in that regard he's certainly not a kind of a, a deep you know a, a genuinely deep thinking person but he's not stupid and he does have a um a relatively well thought out worldview. Uh, but the, um, in so many ways, I think the kind of, um, the liberalism of Justin Trudeau kind of is the, uh, it's the dead end point of Pierre Trudeau's liberalism uh, in the sense that when, you know, when it was, I think shortly after he was elected and he made this, uh, this room, this, this remark that still gets, well, it still gets thrown back in his face by people like me. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this. Uh, I shouldn't be pejorative about this, but this remark about, um, uh, Canada being the world's first post-national country. Oh, James um, talks about this all the time. <laughs> it's a hobby horse. It's a, it's an absurd. It's an absurd. <laughs> um, but in so many ways, I I've, yes. I think it's yes. in, it's a it's the endpoints of kind of this universal. When I was saying earlier, I think this kind of Trudeau senior liberalism is kind of hyper rationalistic, hyper universalistic, homogenizing kind of liberalism. Uh, that was meant that Trudeau was a kind of an, a, a, a true believer in um, the endpoints of that is the kind of um, I don't even want to call it a vacuous statement. The endpoints of that is a kind of absurdity, like a post-national country. It's a country where these kind of thick, meaningful attachments just don't make any sense, right? Because all we can do is think of human beings as individuals. Can't think of any kind of collective. 
um, identities yeah. or collective obligations. The end point of that is a, is a worldview where even the very country that you live in that has these kind of specific institutions and stuff is itself just a kind of, just ultimately just a collection of kind of individuals with these like superficial, you know, you eat this, I eat that, you wear this, I wear that. But they're all just kind of... Um, no cohesive factor there. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they might be who you are. They might be part of your identity, but they're just, you know, you're just, they're ultimately just kind of uh, completely subjective choices. Because um, the, the only things that matter are the kind of, uh, you know, are kind of the liberal part. The, the only things that have kind of thick uh, content to them is the fact that we're like free and equal and we have basic rights. Uh, but if that, if you can only conceive of, of the world and human beings in those terms, well, then a post-national country in some sense is, is, is the end point of that. It's a country where we don't have, where national attachments don't make any sense. Right. Um, so in that sense, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dead-end ideology in that sense because a, a country cannot, Canada is not a post-national country. It's a ludicrous thing to say. Um, but to a certain kind of person, it's going to look like that because it just cannot account for the kind of thick attachments that we have. So it, it sounds like what I hear from you is that there's a need for new ideas. <laughs> both on, on both sides of the, the spectrum for both conservatives exactly. and and federal liberals and i know that uh john ibison was on you today on twitter telling you to kind of come up with some concrete examples yeah. so how does the how does the center right whether that's the conservative party or it's kind of people who are thought leaders or, or, or policymakers on the center right in provincial governments how do they harness, how do they look back into history at the conservative movement and figure out how they fit into it now? And how do they adapt it to a world that is so different from what it was thinking about at the time? From how do we, how do we move ourselves beyond kind of the Reaganism, Thatcherism type of conservatism into something that's more applicable to today's day and age? Yeah, good, good question. Um, the, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, a challenge here in that, I mean, I don't, um, uh, you know, I like to kind of uh, dabble my hand in kind of uh, uh, punditry and um, kind of electoral stuff, but I don't claim that I'm a, uh, you know, when I write Political about- Political strategist. Kind of, yeah, I, when I, I don't claim that when I'm writing about kind of like uh, conservatism that I'm kind of writing manifestos for how you win, the, win elections and get out the votes and stuff like that. Um, and I, I kind of think that, um, so much of the problem with kind of contemporary politics is that actually um, people that kind of live in the world of ideas have no kind of uh, understanding of kind of on the ground politics and vice versa. People that kind of have a, uh, un, live in that with that kind of ground day to day kind of um, uh, knocking on doors kind of thing, just don't think of politics having as having anything beyond, um, you know, they don't look at anything beyond polls and uh, uh, focus groups and think that is kind of the, the essence of politics. So that so much of it is actually about kind of finding ways to kind of meet for, for intermingling and a division of labor, a division of intellectual labor. Um, and I th so I think there's different roles for different people to play. Um, so like, I don't, I don't claim to be a policy wonk. Uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to defend yourself. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, you, you just didn't. <laughs> no, no, that's, 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 that's quite all right. The, um, uh, so the uh, I'm so for example I'm working on something uh, right now that this uh, this this uh, John's uh, tweet today kind of uh, it was the kick in the kick in the kick in the butt to kind of get me to finish it um, I'm working on a piece right now on kind of uh, social conservatism uh, and kind of I hate the the, the piece is it's got kind of a, a riff on why I hate the label um, and um, 
the any kind of any kind of meaningful conservatism in my and I, in, in my in my books is going to be concerned with this this thing called the social uh, the social world social institutions uh, social life because um, though that is where kind of it's where human beings are formed and that's where we find kind of meaning and purpose um, and it's not that um, uh, conservatives need to kind of embrace um, uh, statism you know or kind of seize the means of production to kind of protect social institutions. Um, but I think there's a, there, sh- there needs to be a recognition today. I think actually COVID has really exposed some of these kind of um, yep. weaknesses, uh, mm-hmm. these, these, these challenges. Um, thing, people like, uh, think about things like um, uh, loneliness. You know, we've, there really is a uh, loneliness and it's kind of its relation to kind of people's health, people's happiness. Um, think about kind of, I was reading something today about Canada's baby bust um, and how, you know, people oh, yeah. People are making decisions now to not um, to delay to delay uh, having children and stuff. Um, there's all sorts of kind of, um, and I've got it. There's kind of a litany of things like that, um, where the there should really be a kind of a conservative answer on those things. Um, and I don't think that um, there's a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Sam Hammond, who uh, you may be a uh, some of you guys may be uh, familiar with, um, works at the uh, Niskanen Center in, uh, in DC. He had this term, uh, I think sometime last summer, I'd have to, I forget when it was. Um, and he referred to kind of social conservatives as wearing this kind of a straight jacket. Because uh, they've kind of, um, people that, social conservatism has been reduced to kind of a narrow set of, you know, like hot button topics. Four or five issues, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then it's wedded to a kind of like economic libertarianism where like the most you could ever do, you know, families are the bedrock of civilization, but heavens forbid we ever give them any kind of public support. Cause you know, that would be, that would be, that would be wrong. Um, <laughs> Cause yeah. only good, the only I, I good families are the ones that can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I laugh, but I, I shouldn't. Cause I, I just think you distilled a lot of it. And um, yeah, I, I think, I think a couple episodes back, it was, I, I challenged SoCon elements as well that I think they've poorly defined themselves. Um, and it's unfortunate that because we kind of talk conservatism of, you know, and this is the Peter McKay got to get rid of that stinking albatross. Um, but I really like how you've put it. It brought it back to saying, well, no, like, um, like the family culture, all that really matters. So that, you know, it's a redefinition of SOCON. And I think a number of people that maybe are within the SOCON have to really look at how do they want to define themselves. And, And unfortunately, I think Jeff is being very liberal, not in the political sense, but in the giving sense, when he says it's like four or five issues, because I feel sometimes that it's much, uh, much tighter than that and whether when whether like socons are getting potentially gaslit to in terms of terrifying people of the conservative movement i.e like abortion um but abortion things like the conversion therapy stuff i've seen it within my own province where there's certain people that are within the socon label wear the socon label that quickly get pegged down there um, it perhaps maybe too easy or perhaps because of their own concerted effort. And unfortunately, I think sometimes then that takes away from other meaningful conversations, such as uh, the importance of uh, family and what institutions can we conserve, promote, improve upon so that people want to have children 
uh, within Canada can afford to have children. I think there's a lot of room to play in there with mm-hmm. the conservative element. Well, I, um, I but mean, I think so far there's been a lot of poor definition on it. But but hey, like Stephen Harper, child, uh, the child benefit and all that. Uh, like, oh, we're kind of we're kind of losing you, James. There, uh, further. We kind of lost you, but but I'll just kind of pick up where he was left off because it's always been a frustration of me on my part that at the average conservative MP completely cedes all social and family related matters to the social conservatives who are very focused on gay marriage and abortion and whatever issues are trending when there's, you can say I'm a pro family conservative, but that doesn't actually mean anything to do with those two issues. You can be talking about how, you know, how important families are and how I think the government needs to step in and support them more, both from a population perspective Two, from a generational perspective, because there's clearly a massive generational wealth gap that needs to be kind of made up in one way or another. And um, it's sad that nobody seems to be able to pick up the reins and, and do that. Well, it's, it's, I think there's, I think if you done right, what um, it's more than just say kind of um, expanding the, uh, you know, the, the policy toolkit available for social conservatives to deal with kind of you know, narrow social conservative issues, just like, you know, family formation and um, birth rates, things like that are, I think, you don't have to be a social conservative to be kind of right. concerned. Um, but if you, I think if you're the, what I actually think the, 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 the way forward on this is to actually kind of expand, expand, not just the toolkits of tools available to you to solve problems, but actually expand the kind of range of issues that you're looking at as a social conservative. Because um, I, I think something like if you, if you're concerned with um, child, you know, birth rates and stuff like that, it's not simply um, the the answer isn't just about it. People aren't just not having kids just because they don't have um, enough money. It's a bit deeper than that. Uh, it's to do with kind of people. People tend to delay if people don't have a kind of um, uh, if people don't have kind of a clear vision of where they're going with the future. That's actually when people can tend to make decisions about delaying or not having kids at all. Uh, and if you think about kind of um, the challenges that kind of young people that are kind of thinking, uh, you know, people my age, people that are starting to think, think about and starting to have kids, um, the kinds of things uh, that you want, uh, I mean, we, I've had this discussion with my uh, fiance, we don't particularly want to have kids until, um, until we own a house, uh, until we're kind of settled and stable in some, not just in kind of career terms, but ideally in kind of we're living in a place where we feel like we have we both security. Have space and yeah. security. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, it's so in some sense it's just about um, so thinking thinking about like affordable and abundant housing. Think those are those aren't just kind of questions uh, or challenges to be solved by neoliberals, neolib types. Those are socially social conservative issues. Um, if you think about it, uh, and if you if you're thinking about it more holistically, um, thinking about kind of like um, uh, precarious work. So just put yourself in the shoes of the kind of the the twenty something that you know maybe he's you know maybe that maybe they've actually you know for various reasons people have increasingly like uh, family formation you know starting with the, the the family the parents even that's kind of you know running into isn't I don't know if it's harder today than it ever has been but they're definitely like are unique challenges people face today uh, but think about the kind of the late twenty something who you know they were in school. They took on a bunch of debts. Not, you know, student debt isn't this kind of crisis in the same way that it is maybe in the, the US, it is in Canada, but it's definitely a thing, right? If you come out of school with 
like 40, 50, I don't know, more than that uh, grand, sure. grand in debt. Um, well, it makes sense that well, I'm going to have to delay uh, family formation until I pay this off. Uh, in order to find the job to pay it off, I've got to move to this, you know, these super expensive cities where I can't, can't afford to, I can't, can't live by myself. I've got to have roommates. I've got to, you know, have three or four different roommates to afford to live. That interferes with your ability to, like, you know, your dating life and your ability to kind of settle down with people and find, uh, find someone that you might end up marrying. Um, so then you have, so you have all these challenges. You know, you're maybe you're you're bouncing through contract work and you, you know, you're doing precarious work. Um, you, you you know, you have all the kind of challenges associated with that. Trying to pay off student debt, then you're having trouble. Uh, you can't afford. Um, if you're in this kind of situation, you know, buying a house, starting a family, these things are like, you know, they're, they're just so far down your list because there's so many barriers in your yep. way. Right. Yep. Yep. And the kind of the, these are, these are, um, these are economic questions. These are broader kind of structural challenges that we're facing right now. I don't think social conservatives should shy away from kind of, um, like embrace these challenges as socially conservative. Yeah, I, I, that's exactly what it is. We need more conservatives to embrace the label of social conservative and then expand what they mean when they say that, right? Yeah. It's so, not, yeah, it's not play. just a matter of abortion and conversion therapy. It's a matter of family formation and how do we get families, you know, to have more than two kids or how do we do, you know, how do we get kids set up in a way that they don't have to move as far or what or help help them move if they have to move to a city like that? And I don't think, I mean, what frustrates me is a lot of answers on that fit naturally into a conservative tendency, which mm -hmm. is you want to have an efficient labor market um, and help people move. And I think when it comes to housing, housing, we need more market housing. We need more ability to build housing of all sorts. And that's a cutting red tape thing, which fits naturally in a conservative kind of like tool shed. So I don't understand why we're not kind of embracing more policies like that, that have an immediate impact on the voter. Because to be honest, the, the idea of talking about, if we go into another election this year and talking about the debt and talking about fiscal prudence on a national level, nobody's going to have, it's going to have, it's going to reach nobody. It's going to be a total dead on arrival discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And and the the and, and I what I want to riff on that Jeff is oh go ahead uh, Ben go ahead oh I I was I was just going to say that um this this is what what we're talking about here this is where um you know some eggheady person like me this is where I can kind of meet with um, meet in the middle with the kind of the person that's knocking on doors every day right uh, these are the kinds of um, these I just know from like people like my social group the kind of people I know. Uh, friends, stuff like that. I know that these are the kinds of challenges that people are facing. Childcare, yeah. Um, Finding the, a family GP yep. when you move to a new city, like there's all sorts of issues. Like these that. are these are you can think about these things as I do in these kind of um, not not abstract but kind of philosophical terms. But these are um, the, this is stuff that is readily translatable. It's not just kind of eggheadery and like you know intellectuals, uh, you know future washed up PhD students just playing around with ideas. These are real world kinds of challenges that are kind of, um, they flow out of the kind of first principles that we should have. And you can tra translating those kind of first principles into talking points when you're knocking on the door. It's and not- policies, yeah. Those, are, those, those worlds should not be divorced. They're different things, but they can't, they can't be divorced from each other. And so much of, so many, so much of the kind of- Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, and I think, Ben, one thing that uh, I really appreciated with, uh, uh, some of your your thought leadership, your writing, and I'll I'll link it, it was the C two C journal 
I think it was one of the introductions about the, the, the redefining of red Toryism. Um, and unfortunately, I think some of that has <laughs> gone a bad label as we've talked about that Republican type element of just a conservative that's really a liberal that's trying to out liberal the liberals. And really more, I think you, you kind of go down this road of uh, an older type, the actual Canadian tradition of conservatism, which is founded even from like, you know, the back of the day of Sir John A. Macdonald national projects, things that unify uh, the country. And uh, obviously, you know, there's always going to be that weird or very careful tear line between that and some of the uh, liberal concepts as well, uh, you know, but, but there is something there. And I think there is that tie in as well of, of our discussion of family. And I'm sure somewhere along that comes in the, the, the Burkean and happily little platoons, uh, of, you know, community associations and townships and whatnot, but there's something there. And I've, uh, I've definitely kind of been talking more about red Toryism because it's something that, um, I find much more attractive. And just to, just to go back on what you said, Ben, is that I think there is an important need to do for synthesis between the two kind of camps on the philosophizing of why we're doing what we're doing and then the kind of business of politics of how to get elected. Because I see a lot of times, especially on the conservative side, both at a federal and on a provincial level, that we throw out policies because we think that they'll be attractive to certain demographics based on polling and based on other things. But the why we're doing those policies doesn't fit into an overarching philosophical framework or vision. And therefore it becomes really hard to actually pitch those policies because you don't really know why you're doing it. You're just doing it because you think that, you know, X number of people under 30 are going to want more childcare. You don't ground it in an idea of like families are important and we need to find ways. We are a party that believes in this and we need to find ways to advance mm -hmm. that agenda. This is one of the ways we do that. It's just a tack on thing. And that always frustrates me. So anyway, we're <laughs> pushing your time here. I'll give you the last word. It's been really great to talk to you. Um, what are you looking forward to in the next kind of coming months here politically? And if you've got any projects on the go that you want to give a shout out to, you can, uh, you can do that now. Well, I mean, um, I am two months away from getting married, hopefully. So, um, uh, I, I wouldn't awesome. recommend trying to get married in the middle of a pandemic. It's not fun. Um, <laughs> it, it's no. definitely, a, it's definitely a source of some of these gray hairs I'm developing, but, um, that is probably, if there's, if there's one kind of, um, uh, yeah, that is, that is definitely something that's on the go for me right now. Um, in terms of kind of uh, uh, other things I'm working on, um, I should have I should have uh, something. I don't know when exactly this will air, but I'll, I should have something coming out about kind of what we're talking about here about social conservatism uh, that I'll try and finish up in the in the near future. Um, and in terms of what I'm kind of looking forward to more um, uh, in, the, in the broader landscape. Um, I won't comment, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll stay out of kind of uh, election, election predictions and stuff. But, you know, if there's, there's probably going to be uh, an election in the, this year, I think. Um, and, you know, I'm not particularly kind of enthusiastic or optimistic about how that's going to go. Um, but, the, you know, the world's <laughs> a complicated place, so I could change, who knows. Um, but the, the kind of, these kinds of, um, these kinds of d discussions we're having, we have here, we're having here, um, these need to be part of the kind of whatever happens at the coming election afterwards. These are the kinds of discussions that people need to be having as well. You can't just be having discussions about, um, there's, 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 there's two kind of um, 
uh, at times conflicting, but kind of base bedrock principles, I think, of, of democratic politics, party, party government and democratic politics, is that simultaneously, it's both true that the, the reason political parties exist is to win elections and form governments. Um, you can't just pretend that that's not true. Uh, but the reason political parties want to win elections and form government is because they think that they have something going on, some sort of, they have ideas, they have, uh, you know, some bedrock principles that give them not just the kind of, uh, the uh, kind of a, an electoral uh, appeal and success, but give them a reason why they think they ought to be the people that get to make governing decisions. You get a pension um, too, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's well, some selfish reasons, which I don't think you can ignore hey for why people want to win elections, but I hear, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, um, and those two things, yeah, I mean, you've got you to gotta win re-election to get a pension, I think, federally. So. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you've got to offer something to get people to re-elect you. But um, yeah, you've, you, those two things, can, you cannot, um, the, the ideologues cannot forget that the, per, the goal is to win elections if you're a party. The partisans cannot forget that there's a reason ultimately that you should want to win an election. Mm. Uh, and there's uh, finding in the, in the you know, whatever happens in the aftermath of the election, um, finding ways to bridge these divides, I think, is going to be, uh, going to be the key and going to be something kind of uh, pretty fundamental uh, to kind of figuring out where, where the, the big C conservative party and where the conservative movement more broadly should go uh, in the future. Because um, without, without, without the kind of ideas and without the kind of the, the groundwork stuff, neither of it, uh, neither, neither, both sides need each other. Yeah. Um, and finding ways to bridge those divides, I think is going to be important going forward. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you and hopefully uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens the next couple of weeks and uh, where you're <laughs> always welcome back to update, uh, update us on what you're doing. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for yeah, having thanks me. I, I'm happy to come back. So hopefully, hopefully soon. Thank you so much for listening to Unbound. If you enjoyed our conversation, the best way you can help us continue it is to give us a like and a five-star review wherever you get podcasts. It'd go a long way to help us grow our user base and include more and more people in our conversation. See you next time.